Um, if you don't know who Jamie Pappas is, Jamie has led Crew, uh, Campus Crusade, on Cal Poly's campus, as well as Cuesta's for how many years, Jamie? 20 years. 20 years. Um, I, I just want to just say I appreciate the work that both you and Gretchen have done. You guys are an amazing team. For one, your marriage. Yes. We honor you guys. I mean, honestly, 20 years of making disciples, hundreds if not thousands of people have come through your life, your field, and, you know, I've, I, can, I know what that feels like because we've kind of been on similar paths as well, but you guys have demonstrated the gospel through your marriage, through the raising of your kids alongside you, now they're, now they're adults, and you guys are doing an amazing job. Thank you for what you're doing. Keep doing it. We love you. We're so happy that you guys are here with us to be able to teach scripture. So here you go, Jamie. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that. Actually, Brian was one of the first people I met when we came here 20 years ago. I wanted to connect with the different pastors, and he was here, and he's the cool surfer Calvary pastor, so I used to surf a lot back then, not so much anymore. But yeah, thanks for the encouragement, Brian. He's always been that for me. I love being here. This place is super familiar to me. I think one of our first leadership meetings we had 20 years ago was in this building. We did a big sleepover. Our little kids were running around. And uh, the place is familiar, the faces are familiar. There's a lot of people here that I know from the 20 years. I ran into Corey out in the parking lot and Corey was involved probably in that leadership meeting 20 years ago and some of our current students are out here now. So it's a good place to be. Yeah, so I'm gonna be talking about hermeneutics. So today's gonna be a little less sermony and more seminary. I know that sounds kind of boring. Hopefully it won't be, but I'm not going to be preaching from the word. I'm actually going to be teaching about the word, about how to understand and interpret God's word. It's honestly like one of my favorite things to talk about. I'll teach our first year Bible study leaders this stuff, but it's something that as we think about what we want to do with our students in their four or five and sometimes six years at Cal Poly, um, or even Cuesta. We've had guys go five years at Cuesta. That's quite a feat to do that. Um, just pacing themselves, you know, they don't want to burn out. Where was I going? Anyway, so it's, we really want our students to leave as a self-feeder from the word. You know, you've heard the, the proverb that says, you can give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish, and he'll eat for a lifetime. It's kind of like that with God's word. Like you can go to a lot of sermons and hear a lot of messages and get fed, but the goal for us, and I'm sure it's the goal here as well, is we want you to become self-feeders where you can feed yourself from the word and have the confidence to do that, to know how to do that, to know how to read God's word and accurately get out the meaning from it and apply it. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to be talking about how to do that. So let's begin... Oh, technology. Okay. So I, have a sli- I have some slides, so let's get those rolling. That'll be helpful. You can go to the next one. Okay, so let's just begin with this, kind of a brainstorm or, and shouting it out. So this is going to be interactive. There'll be a few times when I need to hear from you guys. So just as you've read the Bible, maybe you haven't done that that much, maybe you've been doing it for a long time, what are some of the commands or practices you run into in the Bible? Shout it out. Huh? Don't murder. Don't murder. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Sing. What? Sing. Sing? Sing? Yeah. Oh, good. Gotcha. Yes. <laughs> Sing. 
There you go. Yeah, I'm looking for those. Yeah, right? That's in the Bible, right? What else? Now everyone's like, oh, let me think of the weirdest one I can come up with. But I want to hear those. Keep going. Don't worry. Praise God. Rejoice. Give thanks. Don't braid your hair. Don't mix cloths of two different fibers, right? Or don't make cloth of two different fibers? Mm-hmm. Have courage. Have courage. We could go on and on, right? I was looking for the head coverings, women can't speak in church. Um, what else? Homosexual practice. The Bible is full of practices and commands, right? So the trick for us, right, is to... Go to the next slide. Like, how do we determine if these commands or practices uh, apply to us today? So we could just determine it, next slide, if it's weird or not weird, right? So the weird ones we don't think apply to us today. It could be just personal preference, like, oh, I just don't like that one. Oh, I like that one. Uh, we could be influenced by current culture. Perhaps it's our theological tradition. So our church, they wore head coverings. But these other churches don't, so that's why we wear head coverings, because that's what our church does. Or it could just be your pastor's opinion. So Brian says this is what it means and how you apply it, so that's what we're going to do. Oh, there is a screen up there. Awesome. So, but how do you determine which of those apply today and which don't? We need to come up with something that's going to be consistent. OK, I'm just going to go by this. So next slide. Uh, we need to come up with a consistent method of knowing what does apply today or what's for us today and what's not. We can't just do it willy-nilly based on all these other influences of personal preference, culture, and theological tradition or pastor's opinion. Okay? So we want to practice a consistent way of interpreting scripture that avoids our interpretations being conditioned on our own likes and dislikes, cultural norms, theological traditions, and commandments. Okay, next slide. <coughs> So here's the first goal of hermeneutics. The first goal of hermeneutics is to discover the author's original intent, that is, the intended meaning of the passage. So we're going after what's called authorial intent. What that means is a good way to conduct a Bible study is not to ask, what does this passage mean to you? And then everybody goes around and says what this passage means, and everyone kind of just nods their heads. And even though what he said is different than what she said, everyone's just like, oh, that's cool. That's what the passage means. No. Because that's a very relativistic view of truth. We're not getting out from the scripture what it actually means and says. And if we don't do that, if we don't get the meaning of scripture from the author's intent, then it loses its power. It loses its influence. And like Brian said, a lot of things can go wrong from that point. So we have to dig down and figure out what the author's intent is all about. Next slide. So what did the author intend this passage to mean, rather than asking what does the passage mean to me? Cool. Next slide. So here's something that I want us to keep in mind. There's a lot of things going on if you think about what we're doing when we're reading the Bible. So what this really cool graphic. I'm not graphically inclined, as we all know now. Um, <laughs> and you guys are used to really cool graphics, so 
this is like deconstructionist graphics or something, I don't know. <laughs> so, so God is speaking to us, sorry, God is speaking through a human author to an original audience in an original language, right? So when God inspires, so the word inspiration is there, he's inspiring a human person to write down these things in an original language to an original audience, okay? Well, what happens next? Next slide. Then what happens is we have a translator that's going to take that original language, those original writings, we have copies of those writings, and bring them down to what we have as the Bible. Now, the translations can vary from uh, word for word, more literal, New American Standard, ESV, <clears throat> and those are nice because we get the most accurate or direct. But often, the syntax is kind of clumsy. It's hard to read. It doesn't flow very well. So then we can get into what's called a dynamic equivalent or a more paraphrased translation. They're all good for their different purposes. But we're getting something that has a little bit of interpretation already happening. So we have a translation that gives us the Bible that we have today. Next step is what we're going to be talking about mostly today, whereas our interpretation of the Bible. So how are we reading it? What do we get out of it? That sort of thing. And then there's one more player in this whole thing, and that's the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit does something in the process known as inspiration. So the next slide has inspiration, or sorry, illumination. Inspiration was what the Holy Spirit originally did through the original author. We're getting illumination through the Spirit. Here's the awesome thing. The very person who inspired the text, God, is also the very person who is helping us illuminate the text and understand what's already there. So we're not alone in our reading of the text. We can draw upon the Holy Spirit. Now, because the Holy Spirit is consistent, he's going to be leading us in ways that are consistent with what he inspired. So if you come up with a Holy Spirit-inspired Spirit translation that there's no way that's what it means, it's not from God. It needs to be consistent with how the original audience would have understood it. OK, that was kind of quick, but I just thought it'd be good for us to kind of get some of that vocabulary straight. All right, next slide. So we want to start with the big picture and work down to the smaller parts. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is genre. Okay. So I have another really cool diagram. Look at that. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to even tell you how long it took me to figure out how to do that on PowerPoint. <laughs> Far too long. So genre, what is genre? Well, genre, we actually, okay, actually we apply hermeneutics all the time. Hermeneutics isn't just like a thing we do with the Bible. It's not just biblical interpretation, though that's what we're going to be focusing on. We do hermeneutics all the time. We read books, or read cartoons, or read the news. We're applying a hermeneutic every time we read something. Even when we listen to people talk, we're applying a hermeneutic. The hermeneutic that we apply most often is genre, OK? Let me, let me illustrate that. So imagine you're watching Saturday Night Live, and you're watching Weekend Update, OK? It's a little news segment, right, of Saturday Night Live. Now, when you're listening to that or watching that, you know that this isn't actually the news, right? You know that it's spoofing and making fun of. You know that it's satire, because that's just the kind of thing that it is. That's a genre of communication. It's satire. Now, when you go online and read news, or if you 
watch news. I don't know if anyone does that anymore on TV, but you know, if you're watching the news, you're now applying a different a genre because it's, it's supposed to be factual. I know we have fake news and now it's complicated, but you, you're coming at it thinking this is supposed to be the truth, right? That's the, that's the hope and attempt there. So we do it all the time. We apply this genre hermeneutical principle. The next one, you're just going to get smaller and smaller. So when you're reading a book of the Bible, you kind of want to know what's the overall purpose and point of it. Big picture, you guys are even doing the meta-narrative of the entire Bible itself. That's good. You need to know the big story, the big picture. And then it just breaks down smaller. We can just go through these quickly. You've got a paragraph, you've got a sentence, and then you have a word. Now what people like to do when they're studying the Bible is go right to the word, right? We love to bust out our Greek things and our Hebrew things and, and dive into that one little word. What does it really mean? What's the, you know, what's the original root and all that kind of stuff? And there's a place for that, but it's the last place because the big picture is going to influence more than the smaller parts. So we'll, we're going to talk about that. Okay, next slide. So the context, I'm sure this isn't new for a lot of you who have heard about hermeneutics, is extremely important. So there's two kinds of context. You have the literary context, which is what we just talked about. What's going on in the overall book? What's this paragraph talking about? What is the sentence about? And then you get down to the word. So the literary context, which is also influenced by the genre. And then we have the cultural context, right? What was going on for those people in that time? What were the traditions, cultural norms, all that kind of stuff? That's going to influence as well. So we're going to talk about each of those. And then we're going to get into the really challenging stuff. So let's look at literary context, OK? It's an interactive part right now. Here's a sentence. I have a trunk. What does that mean? I'm an elephant. I'm having an existential moment. <laughs> I've just come to self-realize that I have a trunk. Right. Good. Someone said, I'm a car. So another existential moment. You know, I have something in the back of me that stores stuff. What else? Huh? I'm a tree. Right? Traveling. Right? I'm carrying a trunk with me. Any others? I'm half a pair of board shorts, or I have half a pair of board shorts. <laughs> Maybe. What's that? I have a car that has a trunk. Right. So I know what we'll do. To figure out what I mean by that, let's examine the word trunk. Let's break it down into its Latin roots and find out what the root meaning is. It doesn't help, does it? It doesn't at all. What's going to help and what's going to determine the meaning of this sentence and the meaning of that word particularly is the context, right? If it's a children's book and it's Dumbo or whatever, then that's the trunk, that trunk. Or if it's whatever, you guys get the idea. So the context is going to matter. The literary context does a lot. So let's look at the next slide. So here's the deal, right? Words have a range of meaning, and the particular meaning is going to be determined by the context. So I'll give you a biblical example. 
the word flesh okay, is found throughout, throughout Scripture. But even within Paul's writings, he's going to use this word flesh. Now, the Greek word is sarx. And it's the same word that's used every time Paul uses it in 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans and all of his different epistles. But what happens is it means something different depending on how he's using it. It could mean physical flesh. So he's actually talking about his physical flesh. It could also mean your sinful desires, right? Your fleshly desires, that kind of thing. It can also mean life under the law. When he's talking about his life in the flesh, in Romans, there's a segment where he's talking about his life under the law. So again, we need to understand the literary context to understand the particular meaning of the word. Make sense? Okay, let's go on. So let's talk about historical context. Okay? So here's a sentence, right? That's dope. Okay, what does that mean? It's weed, right? Or some kind of narcotic. Okay, it means that. What else can it mean? It's cool, it's sick, that's great, exactly. So this one has a little bit of a range of meaning. But here's the deal. Back in the 1960s, if you were to say, that's dope, nobody would have thought you mean that's cool or whatever. That's not what it meant back then because the cultural context for the use of the word had a meaning that was just, it's narcotic of some kind, right? But now we've got some other cultural usage that's going on that changes the meaning of the word, right? It, it gives it another possible meaning. So historical context is super important. We can come up with all kinds of examples. One of my favorites is if you think about Paul in Romans and 1 Corinthians when he's talking about not eating meat, okay? So if you just read Romans 14 and just read the passage about Paul talking about the eating of meat, you might have thought, given our cultural context, he's talking about going vegan or being vegetarian or whatever. You know, you, you think that this is what it's all about, that it's about that kind of preference in food choice. But it's not. If you, if you go back to the original context, it's about eating meat that had been previously sacrificed to an idol, which caused a lot of issues for the Jews because of their cultural context. But then you have these um, Gentiles, non-Jews, coming into the scene who don't give a, they don't care at all about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. <laughs> Almost went there. Um, so. <laughs> You get the idea. So we have to kind of understand what's going on there, or we might walk away thinking Paul teaches veganism. And no offense to those of you who are vegan, but I'm glad he doesn't, because I like my meat, and I'm going to eat it. So, so cultural context is super, super important. OK. So we talked about literary context, and we talked about cultural context. Uh, let's keep going. I want to make sure, OK, yeah, let's talk about this. So a text cannot mean what it never could have meant to its, original, to its author and the original audience. Okay? So if you're pulling away a meaning like vegetarianism, that's not what it would have meant to them. Okay? So you need, again, we're talking about original audience, original author's intent. All right, let's move on. 
Yes, I forgot about these little caveats. So the, here's something that I think might upset some of you. The Bible is for you, but it's not to you. Okay, and I know it's endearing to think that the Bible is God's love letter to you. And there's many ways in that, in the ways, there's many ways that's true, but I think we need to be careful because we have to understand that yes, it is for us. God certainly had us in mind when he inspired scripture, but we have to continually go back to original audience, author's original intent, what was going on there, in order to get the meaning for us. We can't just jump to the to us. So many of those commands and things that we talked about earlier, we can't say that are directly to us. If they were all to us, the practice of our faith would look really weird. Really weird. Because it, a lot of that wasn't to us. It was to an original audience. Now we've got to figure out, is it for us or not? Okay, so that's what we're talking about. Okay, next slide. I think we're ready for biblical genres. Okay, so let's talk about genre. I said that this is super important. Shout them out. What are some biblical genres, or what I mean by that, are types of books, types of writings in the Bible? Okay, letters. Yeah, fancy word for letters are epistles. Paul wrote all these letters or epistles to these different churches or groups of churches. Prophecy. Prophecy. I heard poetry, right? Law. Hmm? Law? Great. What's that? Narrative. Awesome. Songs. Did I hear songs? Yeah, songs. Mm -hmm. The wisdom literature. Great. What's that? Prose discourse. Prose discourse. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds good. <laughs> I'll, I'll add it to my slide next time. History. History. Good. Yep. Good. You guys got them. I mean, there might be a few that we didn't catch. So I've written down some of the more common ones. Poetry, historical narratives, wisdom literature. Gospels are their own kind of writing. The parables are actually a kind of writing. Prophecy, apocalyptic, and law. Here's what's interesting. A lot of people do this, right? A lot of people will say, hey, bro, do you interpret the Bible literally? Right? And it's kind of like, oh, you're kind of caught. Because if you say yes, then usually people are like, right on. And then if you say no, then it's like, what? What's wrong with you? The reality is you interpret what's intended to be literal, literally, and you interpret what's intended to be figurative, figuratively, and what's going to determine the literalness or figurativeness, that's not a word, but you get where I'm going, is going to be the genre, right? Historical narrative, it's more direct, it's recording what's happening, but you've got poetry, right? And you have the wisdom literature, and you have all these different genres. If we were to take this morning and unpack it into a series, what we would do is we'd look at each one of these genres separately and talk about the interpretive principles you apply. Because they're unique. Now, a lot of the basic principles you apply to all of it, but there are some unique things. So let's talk about one of them. I'm just going to give an example of one of the genres. And it's the one that's going to apply to you guys right now, because you're reading historical narratives, right? In your year of biblical literacy, this is where you're at. You're in the historical narratives. So there's other stuff going on. So next slide. 
So the historical narrative. So let me just lay out some principles that are important. So um, yeah, that's really small, isn't it? So the narratives are, here's something to keep in mind. Narratives are descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. They tell us what happened, not necessarily what we are supposed to do. So descriptive means it's just recording what happened. This is the way it took place. Not necessarily prescriptive, and what I mean by prescriptive is this is what you ought to do, okay? So by reading the narratives, just the stories, you can't automatically jump from an is to an ought. Like this is what happened, therefore I ought to do it, okay? Now we'll keep talking about that, so next point. So the narrative does not directly teach doctrines, so we should first turn to these books, should not first turn to these books for doctrine. The book of Acts is a good example. Okay, so let me illustrate what I mean by these two points. A lot of this hermeneutic here is common sense, right? We read about David's sin with Bathsheba, and we're like, probably not prescriptive, probably not describing what I ought to do with someone else's wife. We get it. So again, I think hermeneutics, a lot of it is common sense. But then there's other things in scripture that we see taking place and we think, oh, that's the way it's supposed to happen. A good example is in the book of Acts, you see the Holy Spirit acting in different ways. You see the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of tongues, of fire. You see people speaking in tongues when the Holy Spirit fills them. So if you think that that's prescriptive, then that's going to determine your theology of the Holy Spirit. When somebody receives the Spirit, there ought to be tongues of fire, and that person should also speak in tongues. Now, why do I say, mm, I don't think that's right? Is it because of my theological commitment to a different doctrine? Maybe in part. But it's also understanding that that book is not designed to teach the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's merely describing what took place. There are other places in scripture, in scripture, the instructional books, the epistles, where there's clear teaching about the Holy Spirit and how he fills and empowers and those kinds of things, okay? So good, Another, that's an example of how we need to be careful with these narratives not to pull out our doctrine. We don't go there first for doctrine. The next point, I think says that we, it illustrates doctrines taught elsewhere. Okay, so that's just one example of one genre, just three basic principles that hopefully will help as you think about interpreting and applying the things that you're reading. Cool, great, next slide. Awesome, oh, I'm glad this is big print, I can read it. So far, so good. But how do we know if the passage applies to us? Okay, so we really need to get to this question. How do we know the commander practice or practices are not just for the original audience? Okay, this is the real trick of hermeneutics. Okay, the real trick. Remember how we started. We've got head coverings and boiling goats and milk and mixing up threads. And then we have be kind, worship the Lord, love one another. We have all this mix of different 
commands and practices. How do we know which of those are for us today and which are not? So let's talk about that. Next slide. Ah, stink. <laughs> so small. OK, so we want to begin with doing what we've already talked about. Paying attention to the genre will be really important. For example, is it part of the Old Covenant or New Covenant? Now, we didn't talk about what to do with the Old Testament law. We would talk about that in more detail. But let me suffice to say that when a new covenant comes, it replaces the old. And you can read about that in the New Testament, about how the practices of the Old Testament have been replaced with a new covenant. So that's going to solve a lot of the questions about goats and threads and all that kind of stuff, right? So that's, again, genre is really important, the things that we've been talking about. The other thing is, is the behavior commanded, prescribed, or merely described? So I'm just kind of reminding you that a lot of what we might wonder about is easily figured out because of the things we've already talked about. Next point. So let's talk about the epistles. This genre is the letters that were mentioned. It's primarily Paul's writings, not exclusively. But they present a really unique challenge. And it's a really unique challenge for the interpreter because they are very specific, specific to usually an issue that's going on in the church. Paul's saying, hey, you guys need to know about this and stop doing this. And it's specific in its content. It's specific in its time. It's specific in its place. It's specific to this group of people. And so that genre really creates some challenges for us, because we want to ask the question, well, is that really for us, or is it not? So this is where we get questions about, well, talk, he talks about slavery, so shouldn't we practice slavery? Well, we don't practice slavery. What about the way that he talks about women? What about head coverings? What about homosexuality? Because he has very clear instruction about all those things, right? So how do we know if it's for us or not? Next point. Next slide. OK, common sense hermeneutic. Again, I'm going to keep going back to this. So for most texts, this big hair hanging here. For most texts, <laughs> we understand what applies to us today and what does not. So 1 Corinthians 13, that's the, the chapter about love, right? Love is kind, love is not jealous, does not seek its own. We just know that somehow that still applies, you know, that, that it's very universal. And then you've also got other texts, like 2 Timothy 4.13. And that one is Paul asking that Timothy bring the cloak and the scrolls or the parchments or whatever next time he visits. We're like, oh, I don't think that applies to me. So some of it's, you know, we, we get it. We know that it's very specific to that person or extremely universal. Let's keep going. <clears throat> OK, so here's something that will help. We want to distinguish when we're reading these different commands and practices what's a central or core message to the Bible, what we see universally talked about throughout the course of Scripture, and what things are peripheral to it. So for example, the fallenness of man, the redemption of mankind through God's grace, 
and the nature of God are all clearly part of the central core. You almost can't go anywhere in the scriptures without that being illustrated or demonstrated or directly taught. It's throughout scripture. But the holy kiss, which Paul talks about, and head coverings are examples of things that are peripheral. They're not talked about a whole lot. It's not a core theme of the Bible. Let's keep going. Another point. Distinguish between what is inherently moral and what is not. So in scripture, how much time do I have, by the way? So in scripture, <clears throat> Paul has these, what are called sin lists, where he kind of just rattles off um, different things that we're supposed to avoid because they're sin. In those sin lists, there are not cultural items. None of those sin lists contain cultural items. So again, these are things that are inherently moral behaviors. And if you look at those sin lists, You'll notice that they are, they're talked about throughout scripture, and most of them relate back to a common theme in scripture, sexual purity or things like that. <clears throat> right? But things like foot washings, head coverings, women speaking in church are not inherently moral behaviors. Okay. One more point. Actually, I think there's two points. Okay. <clears throat> Note where the New Testament is uniform and consistent and where there are differences. Examples of uniformity include love is the basic Christian response, a non-retaliation principle, murder, stealing, drunkenness, sexual immorality in general, and homosexual practice. The New Testament's universal in those things. The New Testament does not appear to be uniform on matters such as women's ministries in the church. Okay, so what do I mean by that? So again, I'm saying that there's these inherently moral things where the New Testament is completely uniform. What Paul says, what James says, what Jesus says, uniform, taught this way, consistent. But when you read the New Testament, you'll see that some of the teaching on women's ministries in the church are different. Some of the things that Paul says are different than what we might see. So, for example, that Romans 16 passage you see a woman acting as a deacon in the church. She's serving in a leadership role within the church. In another passage, you see a woman and her husband instructing one of the apostles in the word. Pulls them aside, there's some instruction going on. So she's teaching. And in the last one, you see women prophesying in the church, carrying out a role. And prophesying was both proclaiming and predicting. It's not just, hey, this is what's going to happen to you, bro. It's also proclaiming the word of God. Most of what the prophets did was proclaim God's word, and they predicted. So you see places where women are exercising significant roles or functions in the church. Okay, one more. Actually, two more, I think. This one's a little nuanced, so let me just read it. And I'm sorry there's so much text, but I just figure it'll be good for you guys to see it. And if you're taking notes, it'll help you take notes. But this stuff, if this was easy, I wouldn't be up here, right? We'd all, all the churches would agree and all people would agree this is what the Bible says. I'm trying to get to the stuff that's sticky, that's challenging, partly because of our culture, but also our traditions and things like that. 
So it's nuanced, so it, it, it's a little bit detailed. OK, so determine the cultural options open to the New Testament writer. OK, so the New Testament writer might have options he can take with a particular teaching. So let's think about slavery, homosexual practice, the value of women. So let's use those as examples. So New Testament writer is about to talk about slavery, homosexual practice, the role, or value of women. So we want to think about, well, what were the options available? What, what was culture saying? Did the culture have a couple views on it or just one view? To the degree that the writer agrees with the cultural situation in which there is only one option, this increases the cultural relativity of such a position. For example, homosexual activity was both affirmed and condemned by writers of antiquity. So there's an example of a, a subject matter, a behavior, that the New Testament writer had an option. The, the culture wasn't just saying one thing about it. It, it forced the writer to, to decide what's God's view on this, had to decide, and spoke against it. Okay? So that probably means it's not culturally relative, because the culture differed and the, the, the writer had to choose. But there are issues that um, the New Testament gives a singular position on. So, for example, attitudes about slavery and the status and role of women were basically singular. What does that mean? So what that means is in that culture, the culture hold, held one view about slavery. Totally acceptable, it's just the way it's done, no big deal. And it held a singular view about the role and importance of women. So the New Testament writer, as he's writing about those things, doesn't have an option. In his mind, there is no option. And so that increases the likelihood that his perspective is conditioned by the culture. Does that make sense? Um, often the argument is made, look, the church got slavery wrong. The church got the value of women wrong. The church has homosexuality wrong, the practice of homosexuality. And what I'm saying is that's not, they're not all the same kinds of things because the writer only had one option when it came to slavery, when it came to the role of women or importance of women. There were, uh, there were options to choose from. So when there's only one option, it increases the cultural relativity. Hard to get your mind around that one completely, but. Um, think about it, and you can always talk to me afterwards. Okay, next point. This one's really important. Um, oh, it's a continuation. So no one denounced slavery as an evil. Women were considered to be inferior to men. Therefore, when the New Testament writers affirm these cultural attitudes, they are reflecting the only cultural option. Yeah. All right, next point. Okay, so here's um, a final reminder in the immortal words of the theologians, Bill and Ted, be excellent to one another. And what I mean by that, and you can go to the next slide, is, man, we're going to differ on stuff. We're going to differ on these issues. They're not easy. I've laid out some principles. But applying these principles can take some work, take some thinking, and that sort of thing. So we just need to honor one another. 
when we're pursuing God's word together. Uh, go to the next slide. Is there a next slide? There should be a next slide. Okay. Is there one more after that? Yeah, go to that one. Okay, I just needed to give credit where credit was due. So this stuff that I've shared with you today is taken from a class I took in seminary on hermeneutics by a guy named Walt Russell, who also wrote a book, Playing with Fire. So I cited the book. And then another book, um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Awesome book. These books are great because they lay out the principles that I've just shared with you, but they also get into the different genres. So you're like, well, how do I interpret the Gospels differently? Or how do I interpret the law differently and apply it? They get into those things. So what I can't do today, these books can really help you do. Awesome? Cool. All right. Let me pray for us. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, yeah. So one of the things that um, I can say is there's going to be one meaning. We're hoping to find that one meaning. Why is there one meaning? It's because there's one meaning that the author intended. Now, that gets a little fuzzy when it comes to prophecy, because a lot of times it's very cryptic and could mean something for that immediate audience, but then something for the future. That one's a little more challenging, but generally there's one meaning. But I would say there's a, there's a thousand applications, right? So what's a good example? Well, love your neighbor, right? Well, OK. So I get that. I th think I know what that means. And then you ask for the Holy Spirit to give you particular ways to apply that. So I think of George and Carlotta, our neighbors across the street. Or I think of um, Maggie next door. So once you got the meaning of it, I think you can then ask the Spirit to direct you in the ways that you could apply it specifically to your own life. And that's where the Holy Spirit can convict if it's a sin issue. Um, so is there a sin I should get rid of in my life? Is there a practice I should begin to implement in my life? Um, is there a person that I could apply this towards if it's kindness, gentleness, whatever? So does that help? Well, Lord, thanks. Thanks that your word is powerful, that it is a two-edged sword. It does convict. It does show us the ways that we fall short. Um, but it also gives us clarity, wisdom, insight. Thank you that you have shared your heart to people. And you've done that for them, and you've done that for us. And I pray that we would fall in love with your word and it would be a spring of nourishment to our souls and encouragement, direction. Holy Spirit, we need you. We ask for you to direct us in this process of interpreting, applying. And Spirit, thank you that you are with us and you actually give us the strength and the ability to love. You are love, and you are kindness, and you're all the things that we need to apply so many of these things. So thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.